welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. One of the things that I try to focus on in the work that I do in, in my ministry with students is really trying to make apologetics practical and looking at the culture, the cultural issues that we are dealing with, and how can we train students really to engage the culture that they live in? Because if we're just taking this information and we're just kind of sitting in our rooms, or our churches with it, and we're not actually taking it out, doing evangelism, engaging the culture, you know, what is it really good for, uh, except for just kind of bolstering our own kind of uh, ideas and, you know, making us feel a little bit better as well. And so uh, a great book that has just recently come out and that I have the chance to talk to the author about is Cultural Apologetics by Paul Gould. Uh, it is Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. And so, Paul, thank you for coming on and joining me to discuss your work. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. It's great to be here with you, Ryan. Yeah, so so Paul graduated with his master's in <laughs> philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology. I'm also a Talbot grad. Yep. Not philosophy of, of religion and ethics, but MA apologetics, but same school. Yep. Um, but you also went on to get your PhD in philosophy at Purdue. Uh, now you do a few different things. So you are the founder and president of Two Tasks Institute, as well as a visiting fellow at the Henry Center of Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And also, I think you are a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, all at the same time, you live in Texas. That's right. Yes, it's, so, a, it's a crazy life. Right <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about how that works. You're living in yeah. Fort Worth, Texas, which I got family down there. Beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, cool. I'm nice. big, are you a Rangers fan? Actually, no, sorry. Oh. Uh, we're, I'm from the Midwest, so I'm going to stay loyal to, to Milwaukee Brewers. Oh, Milwaukee. So, okay. All righty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, my dad was born and raised Dallas, and so okay. I, I grew up being a Rangers fan as well. Or not as nice. well, but as well as him. Um, but anyways, so you live in Dallas, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, but you're a professor in Oklahoma, and you are a fellow at Trinity, which is in Illinois. How exactly does yes. that work, and how did you get connected to these places? Yeah, so actually, uh, what brought us to Fort Worth for the last five years, well, uh, for about five years, I taught at a local seminary called Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then I left there about two years ago, and so I've been teaching online with Oklahoma Baptist, so that's why I can do it from okay, Fort Worth. Okay, perfect. And then uh, this year, as a visiting scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School here in Chicago, I actually fly, which is what I just got. I just arrived in my apartment. I fly Monday uh, to Chicago, and then I fly home on Thursday. And so it's kind of just for one year, but it's uh, kind of a crazy, now that the snow's in, uh, the, the travel days get a little longer. But uh, that's that's how we do all these so crazy every, things So every once. week you fly up there Monday, fly back Thursday? For this year, yes. Wow, that yep. is that is quite a work. So what exactly are you working on uh, at Trinity? I saw a little bit of some details, but what, what yep. does that in, in, entail? Yeah, so the, it's out of the uh, the Henry Center and the Creation Project, which they've got some funding, uh, some you know, pretty good funding. And so the project I'm working on this year is I'll start sort of big picture that we could narrow down. But really what I'm interested in, and it'll connect with some of the things we'll talk about in with respect to my book, um, <clears throat> I'm really interested in capturing the sacramental view of the world that was pretty much the way that everybody viewed the world for the first 1500 years of, you know, the church's existence. And so to do that, the actual thing I'm working on is called Neo-Aristotelian Accounts of Divine Creative Activity. But but basically what I'm trying to do is reappropriate some of the old ways of viewing the world and then bring them up to date with contemporary science and, and philosophy and metaphysics. So from that, um, got some technical work I'm doing in, in uh, what's called Neo-Aristotelian Metaphysics. And then I've got two book projects that I'm working on uh, that are actually connected to some things that maybe I'll, I'll connect it to uh, some parts of the book in 
a little bit, but two book projects okay. as well. Yeah. Right, so, so I read that Neo Aristotelian Divine Creation or something like that, and I, yeah. I. So, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, um, let's see here. Uh, it basically is the idea. So, there's two. There's two competing views of the world when you talk about a philosophy of nature or, okay. you know, metaphysics is the – I know you know this, but the philosophical study of the of the world and it's, mm-hmm. you know, what, what exists and the structure of the world. Yeah. And so um, the dominant view that's at least been around since uh, the Enlightenment is what's called today in the academy the neo-Humean view of the world. And that's basically the idea that, you know, the only kind of – Fundamental things that exist are the little BBs, the atoms, and then everything else are just, you know, built up out of the atoms, but they're nothing but, you know, physical, chemical molecules in motion. Um, and that it's a very mechanistic view of the world. You kind of get the clockmaker image of the world. And that's the neo-Humean mosaic is what it's called. Okay. But what I'm interested in is a return to what's called the neo-Aristotelian mosaic. And this is a more traditional view of viewing the world where um, there's dependencies all throughout the world. Um, there's things called substances, you know, like you and I and oak trees and, and, uh, and plants are actual substances that are fundamental holes that aren't just reducible to their little BBs, the little atoms. Um, and within that, uh, you know, you have things like teleology, which is just that fancy word for purpose or order. And instead of the clockmaker analogy to understand what this mosaic look, lo- looks like, the medievals loved uh, and, and used the phrase the great chain of being. And the idea was that, you know, you have God sort of at the top and then dangling down, you have these orders of uh, perfected beings, uh, angels. And then in, in the universe, you have humans and then animals, and then plants, and then inanimate matter, and then non-being. And so it's kind of this idea that everything is structured, everything is ordered, there's this hierarchy of being, and it, it actually reflects. And then when you put your theology cap back on it, you know, part of the, the question, why did God create, was to communicate his goodness. And, and he communicates that uh, to creatures through uh, making a world that reflects his goodness in all the various ways through that which he has made. So that's a little bit of what the Neo-Aristotelian wow. mosaic that I'm interested in recapturing. Perfect. Yeah, I read that and I was like, I got to figure out what that means a little bit more. Yeah. All right. So you've written this book, Cultural Apologetics, Renewing the Christian Voice, Conscience and Imagination in a Disenchanted World. And uh, I originally heard about this book actually from Brett Kunkel, where he said, uh, you know, that he was buying everyone he knew a copy of this book. And I said, well, where's mine? And he goes, do I know you? Oh, no. <laughs> Just classic Brett. Um, yeah. But uh, anyways, uh, so I, he was able to put us in contact and, and I was able to get it. So Maybe from the beginning, people are going to say, okay, I know apologetics, um, but cultural apologetics, what is that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so apologetics, you know, typically is understood as the rational defense of the faith or something like that, giving reasons for the truth of Christianity. Um, and, and let me give you the backstory, actually, of what happened with this book. So, you know, teaching at the seminary in Fort Worth years ago, I was asked to, I actually asked to teach a class called cultural apologetics. Um, hadn't been done yet at the seminary, but uh, I was assigned to teach that. And then, of course, as any educator does, you Google the phrase to figure out what you're supposed to teach. <laughs> so I Googled the phrase. This was like six years ago. You know, what is cultural apologetics? And at the time, there was like nothing out there. And so all I did was uh, that first year is gathered seven books that I was interested in on, cu- on culture, apologetics, and the gospel. And basically used it, you know, I was teaching, but I used it as a research seminar to 
figure out what I was interested in. And then every year for about five years, I would cycle out those seven books and put seven new ones in. And finally, by about the fourth or fifth year, I started to realize, okay, this is what I mean by cultural apologetics. And so here's the definition that I came up with. Um, and basically the idea is working to reestablish or renew the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that the gospel will be viewed as both true to the way the world is and true to the way the world ought to be. In other words, that it's not just true. We want to help people see that it's true and reasonable, mm -hmm. but it's more than that. It's actually good and beautiful as well. And so that's kind of my working definition of cultural apologetics. And how much would you say that apologists are, are focusing on this kind of definition? I know that in my work with Maven, we, we do focus on the true goodness and beauty, uh, really trying to grab the three areas that really, um, you know, entail the, the full view. Uh, but how many apologetics, uh, apologists maybe are, are, are focusing on all of it or fit simply just, let me just state that it's true and then you should just want to believe it because I, I think generally apologist mindset is I enjoy truth and that's why I do this. And so everyone else is like me. So here's the truth. You should now just believe it versus adding in the goodness and the beauty as well. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think you're right, Maven and, and Brett and you guys. I love the holistic approach that you have. I think that and I'll just speak for myself. You know, so I am a philosopher and I, you know, I love propositions. I love arguments. I, I traffic in arguments. That's what we do. Right. Um, but I just realized that there's more objections to Christianity than just the objection that it's not rational. And so I do think that the, the plank of reason, as I like to call it, is a well-walked plank among apologists, like a lot of us are very comfortable there. Some of us are only comfortable there and nowhere else, and that's okay, actually. Um, but I guess the proposal I want to say is, no, we've got so many more things at our disposal, you know, epistemically, number one. And number two, there's so many other objections to our faith, especially in the West, which is, you know, what I was thinking about as I wrote the book. Um, and so there are people that are doing it. And I think what's interesting is I've noticed, and even in writing the book, um, there's people that are exploring other planks, as I would call it, other other, uh, you know, planks that we can build bridges to Jesus uh, from our c culture. You know, there's people writing on moral apologetics. Think of Dave Baggett and Mary Beth Baggett and and the folks over at moralapologetics.com. And they're, they're really focused on that aspect. Um, there's others like Holly Ordway at, uh, at Houston Baptist University and others who are focused on the imaginative side. And with cultural apologetics, I, I want to honor all of those things, the rational, the emotional, the, the moral. But I also want to I want to sort of enfold them into a, a theology of what culture is and what it means to be human in the midst of culture and, and how culture actually shapes us. Well, I should say that we shape culture and then culture in turn shapes us. And so I wanted to kind of incorporate it into that. Um, and so the thing, the, and what, let me just say one more thing, cause I know I can get on tangents here, but, um, the <laughs> other good. thing, yeah, the other thing with cultural apologetics that I don't think we're doing well, and this is, this is a big part of the book was I make a distinction between a uh, local and global, you could call it upstream and downstream apologetics. So if you think about culture, you know, upstream, you have the culture shaping institutions of the world, uh, with respect to truth, it's the university with respect to uh, beauty, it's the arts. And with respect to goodness, it's the city. And then you, downstream, you have all these, uh, you know, the consumers of culture, the individual lives. And a cultural apologist is someone who actually works at both upstream and downstream or global and local things. Um, and, and that's a piece that I think we're, we're drastically missing, not just as apologists, but as evangelicals. You know, we tend to have a window of four years or, you know, metrics, maybe gospel conversions and baptisms, which are all, of course, important, but we're not, we're not, 
we never focus on the long term. And, and part of the proposal that I'm arguing for is now we've got to be strategic. We've got to be wise. We've got to think about how culture is formed and, and things like that. Perfect. Now, can you kind of go back over what you just said, just because you went quickly, and I just want to kind of, you know, play this out a little bit more for those listening, as you talked about uh, truth is found at the university. And I think, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. We understand why that is the way it is. Uh, Beauty in the arts, and we go, yeah, of course, art, beauty. But you said goodness is in the city. What do you mean by goodness in the city? Yeah, so, um, okay, yeah, let me back up. So the the question is, what domain within culture uh, gets to tell us, you know, what truth is or what beauty is or what goodness is? And so, like you said, you know, the university pretty clearly is that place where knowledge, you know, the people with the PhDs behind their name get to tell us the truth about the world or at least what they think it is. Uh, and so, too, with the arts. With respect to goodness, the idea there with the city and especially in, if you think about uh, the 21st century and, and where culture is heading, we're moving away from the rural uh, focus to a city cu- focus in culture. And so uh, this includes things like government, uh, politics, law, um, you know, all, all the things that are responsible for the infrastructure, the markets. Think of New York and, and Wall Street. That would be part of this as well. So we so the point is that as a cultural apologist, we need to be thinking strategically about how we can assert Christian leadership in those areas of cultural influence as well, so that, you know, Jesus and the gospel will be viewed as something that's good. You know, so it's a debate about, I mean, uh, man, there's so many debates about uh, politics and faith, economics and faith. I mean, there's a raging, as you know, issue right now or debate about social justice, but, uh, you know, we own justice, right? I mean, that's, that's, all that stuff comes from us. So that's kind of the ideas. that area. Well, it's so good to, to to maybe remind Christians of that in the the sense yeah. that you know it seems like people feel like oh if I want to be a social justice warrior I need to I need to get it out of Christianity. Right. Versus yeah. you say you know that really does provide that foundation. Mm-hmm. Now you you also mentioned in your book that you know maybe this term cultural apologetics doesn't always have the best uh, understanding or or not everyone is in agreement with it. And you did uh, have a, a short little quote there by William Lane Craig. And I'm, I'm curious, is, is, is the quote where you kind of said, hey, he doesn't have the best view of this. It, would it be against how you define cultural apologetics or is he defining it in a different way and he's against that? And so if, if those listening go, well, I've heard of this thing, cultural apologetics, and people are not talking about it in a good way. You know, yeah. is, is, are there different views of it or is he actually saying what you are talking about here would not be uh, the best yeah, no. I, so, yeah, and I don't think what I'm talking about here is something that Bill would take issue with. Um, yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm you know, almost positive that he wouldn't. Uh, in, in his book, Reasonable Faith, you, you mentioned the quote uh, as I was writing and researching the book. He uh, he takes a pretty um, narrow view. And again, this, you know, you can't fault fault him. He can't know everything. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, he took a pr- pretty narrow view of what cultural apologetics was and basically defined it as a kind of worldview analysis that is in the spirit of Francis Schaeffer that simply critiques culture. Um, and of course, you know, that is part of any cultural apologetic approach is that we need to understand the culture that we seek to reach. But my proposal is way broader than that. Um, I think where Bill would be a great example of someone who's very comfortable and feels called only to walk that plank of reason. Um, I don't think, and I've heard him, you know, say in response to this since he teaches a little bit at Houston Baptist University, uh, the kinds of things that I'm talking about, the kinds of things that Nancy Piercy, for example, does or Holly Ordway does, he would be all for that. It's just not his cup of tea. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So now, uh, also in your, um, 
in the foreword. It was written by J.P. Moreland. I, I just I love something that J.P. said there. Is he said, our greatest need is to reintroduce believers to the value and practice of apologetics and to equip them to engage our culture's ideas in a winsome and intelligent way. Um, and so I'm, I'm just curious then of taking this idea of, of where does apologetics come in to play when you're discussing beauty and the arts uh, that seems maybe some go, no, that's disconnected. You, you have your arts and then you have your, your logic and reason. How are these two things connected? Yeah. So this is what, this was the big aha moment for me. And it's, uh, I don't have my, I don't have the book with me. So you'll, you, you'll know the chart if you've read it already. Um, it, so I was reading Peter Kraft in, in his book, Back to Virtue, and he had a chart there where he talked about how um, God has given us three prophets of the human soul. You know, he's given us reason, he's given us the conscience, and he's given us the imagination. And then uh, the thing that was so helpful and that actually pulled a lot together for me was this, you know, the, the, this idea that reason, each of these is on a quest for the object of their longing, of their desire. So, for example, reason is on a quest for truth. And the conscience is on a quest for goodness. And the imagination is on a quest for beauty. And then if you put our theology cap on, you know, and ask the question, what is the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty? Well, the answer, as Kraft put it, was Christ. And he's right, of course. You know, one of my favorite uh, quotes in Augustine's Confessions is in Book 3, where he basically says of God, you are the beauty of all beautiful things. And then he says, you are the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And so the connection is this, that if you think about the longings of the heart that every human has because they're implanted in our heart by God, well, we can use those deep longings of the heart to set to awaken people and then set them on a quest that has Christ as the end or the, the telos or the purpose, you know, the source of that, that longing. And so that's a little bit about how I'm envisioning, you know, just at, at a purely uh, pictorial level, you know, what yeah. it means to sort of walk the plank of the imagination on the way to beauty which finds Christ as, as a result. Yeah, that's a good chart. I have it right here. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is a very good visual of understanding, yeah. really, of even just the goal of apologetics and everything that yeah. we do is pointing people back to Christ and pointing people to the gospel. Um, now, you bring up uh, the, the ideas of, I mean, the first thing is really understanding the culture uh, that we live in and, and the need for that and, and really kind of uh, relate it to kind of a missionary way of thinking, which, you know, I really relate to because I was a missionary overseas for four years. And so uh, knowing the, the training that, that goes into learning the language and, and learning things about the culture and then uh, just even being in the culture. I remember thinking, you know, if I um, – uh, my initial, uh, the initial commitment was only four months. And thinking when I uh, ended up moving it to one year, which then became four years. Wow, uh, nice. Uh, when, I, when I reached the end of my four months, I thought, wow, if I was going home today, I wouldn't have done a whole lot. Because this, this first four months was mainly learning, was mainly growing, was, yeah. was building relationships. I, I didn't accomplish things that you would think a missionary really does accomplish. And, and you kind of bring up this, this uh, uh, you bring up Leslie Newbigin, which would be interesting why and, and who that is. But, you know, of, of really asking the question, the question, what would be involved uh, in a missionary encounter between the gospel and this whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call the modern Western world. So who is Leslie Newbigin, and, and kind of how do you relate this to this missionary understanding of, of how do we bring the gospel in? Yeah, that was another um, 
really sort of pulling the pieces together moment for me as I was thinking, well, I've been wrestling with these. I, I was a campus minister with crew for 16 years prior to becoming a professor. And, and so a lot of what I'm wrestling with is just the question I've been wrestling with for the last 20 years on the college campus. You know, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in our today's culture? But, um, Newbegin is interesting because he, so in 1936, he was sent from Great Britain to, uh, India to, to preach the gospel to the Hindus. And he faithfully ministers there for 40 years. In 19, I think it was like 74, he comes back uh, to Great Britain. And he realizes in the time that he was away, his own sending country had become, as he would call it, post-Christian. And so in the 70s, he began to wrestle with this question, you know, how do we have a genuine missionary encounter with our own culture, which for him, again, was Great Britain. And so he asked that question that you just read, you know, what would be involved in a genuine missionary encounter between the, and I loved how he says it, says it, he says, between the whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call modern Western culture and the gospel. And I think that's such a great question. So I call it New Begins Question. And really, that that's the crucial question, I think, in a post-Christian age <clears throat> that all of us need to be asking. And of course... Newbegin understood that it's not the it's not the ultimate question, right? It's the penultimate question. The ultimate question is that we want every person to ask is what do you make of Jesus Christ? But what was so brilliant about Newbegin is he understood that the gospel was never proclaimed in a vacuum, and that there's this cultural mindset and there's this uh, sort of cultural conscience and there's this cultural imagination that actually informs whether the gospel will be viewed as plausible or implausible, desirable or undesirable, or either, you know, neither. And so that's that was a uh, that was another big sort of piece that uh you know I feel like God just dropped a few things to help my own thinking sort of dropped it right in my lap and new begin was a big a big part of that. Okay. And uh, what you just said right there is just when when we're presenting this in culture is it going to be plausible implausible is it even going to be good? You know I, I know Sean McDowell often says you know the the question that students are asking this day these days is not necessarily is Christianity true but is it good? Right. Uh, that's really something they're focusing on. But but in my interview that I did with J.P. Moreland, we talked a little bit about plausibility structures. Can you just explain uh, for yourself uh, a little bit what you mean by uh, if our culture is even looking at this as being plausible? Yeah. And how that affects our, our, our witness. Yeah, and I think it might have even been, I know we both, you know, taking, no JP and taking classes. Have you taken classes? Do you get to take Never some? had him as a professor, okay. but I know him and, and have interviewed him. Okay, good. Yeah, so he's kind of like a fire hydrant. So I might have heard this from him at some point. But, um, you know, if you think about it, so just think about it in the context of like, for example, when I was a campus minister, you know, walking around a college campus, you know, if I would walk to the local university and I'd see these, say there were all these signs and they said something like, you know, come hear what the Flat Earth Society has to say about the, you know, the nature of the world or, or you know, like no one would care what the Flat Earth Society has to say, right? Because it's I'm, just I not might be interested just to hear their, their reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we'd go because it's a like joke. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We'd go because like, what the heck? Is this for real? You know? But nobody would go because they actually take it seriously. Yeah. And, and the thing is, the unfortunate truth is so often, especially on our college campuses, but not just there, um, if we do an outreach, you know, and we say something like, come hear what, you know, Jesus Christ has to say about, you know, the nature of the world. Well, people just don't care. It sounds like that flat earth sign sounds to us. And so, um, but to you us, know, it's the most important thing. And so we go, why, right. why would they not care about this? Right. And that's why the plausibility structures matter. You know, like, so, uh, you know, Peter Berger is the, the person who coined that phrase. And it's just the idea that every culture, actually not every culture, every culture does, but every person has a plausibility structure as well. And all that is, is that, that basically that set of beliefs that someone is or is not willing to consider as plausibly true. And so the point is, as a cultural apologist, or really just as an apologist in general, if we don't, pay attention to 
um, the conditions, uh, you know, the, the soil, the, 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 you know, the things that are plausible or implausible. There's no way that we're going to, you know, the gospel is even downstream of that. And so we've got to sometimes back up and, and work on some prior, some pre-evangelism sometimes we might call it, but some of the prior issues that inform these kind of issues. Yeah. I feel like I deal with that with my students, you know, I, yeah. as, as those listening know, but you don't, as, as I teach at international school where most of the students cool. are not Christians, about 70% non-Christians. And I teach apologetics and worldview and oh, ethics. Fun. Oh, wow. and, uh, and it's amazing, but you know, they often come into my, so at my, my sophomore slash junior class is the apologetics class. And they often come into that class, you know, only mm-hmm. having, you know, a survey of biblical literature where they do go over reasons and, and it's an amazing class, but they kind of come in like, you know, I just don't, th- mm-hmm. this stuff is all nonsense. I don't believe any of it. Yeah. And it's amazing that after we spend chapters on why we think the Bible is the Word of God, on the internal and external evidence for the Bible's authority. And I just finished The Existence of God this last week, and, and it's amazing reading my students' writings as they go, this actually is starting to make sense. Like this That's actually, cool. there, there are there are actually reasons for this. Yeah. And it just changes that framework to where now Jesus becomes a little bit different in their mind. Uh, when now we're going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection coming up starting tomorrow. Good. It's just like, yeah. you know, it's one of those things. It's so cool just changing that plausibility structure to where right. this became, it went from this myth that is just grounded in nothing to there's actually good reasons to believe it's true. Yeah, and that's great. Like I love, you don't always need to do this, but it certainly helps if God exists, right? Well, then something like the resurrection is at least possible. Yeah. And so that that's a great example of, you know, people talk about um, two-step apologetic, apologetics where, you know, you first argue for the existence of God and then for the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And that's a great example of uh, one way, especially in a post-biblical culture, post-Christian culture, to help people you know, see, okay, wait, this stuff isn't totally crazy and things like that. So that's really cool that you get to do that. Yeah. So in our last, we have about three or four minutes before we're going to take a break. Um, But you you talked about, or even in the section with Leslie Newbegin, you know, how how can we talk about Jesus in a way that is understood by those becoming further and further removed from the language and worldview of Christianity? And so, you know, uh, thinking, do you have maybe uh, some some funny or some good examples of what would be a really bad way to try to talk about Jesus to people who don't understand? And what would be a better way to try to engage people with the gospel? Well, I'll just share embarrassing, um, you know, learning from experience here. Um, I'll tell you a way not to do it is to not never listen and simply get your argument out. You know, um, that's the quickest way to uh, turn off somebody. And I've done that. You know, I'm guilty of that. Um, and I actually had one guy. I, I think I might have even shared it in the book uh, there. But uh I can remember because it was such a convicting thing. He was an atheist. Cool, I've got an atheist. You know, uh, we were sitting in a dining hall in a dorm, and I was I whipped out a napkin and was walking through the Kalam cosmological argument, so excited, you know, to show him clearly that God exists. And he just sat back after a while and said, "Paul, can you just stop? That's you know." Basically, he he didn't say it this way, but you're just not scratching where I itch. And mm. and the point was, I wasn't listening. And then yeah. I just put my pen down, put the napkin down, and listened. And then for 30 minutes, he just went off on you know just poor father relationships and like oh, totally missed. And so I think probably the the thing I've learned, we've just got to listen, number one. Um, I could say more, but I know we're out of time. But yeah, that, that would be the, the thing that popped into my mind right away. So, so listening and really kind of addressing the issues that they have. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Seeking first to understand, and then we can move. Whether even just with a question, sometimes, 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 uh, you know, the best thing is just ask, "Why do you think that?" And then that, you know, that opens up a whole set of dialogues because you shifted the burden of proof onto them to defend their view as plausible and reasonable yeah. and desirable. And so that kind of thing has been really helpful. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I talk a lot about on this show. I talk about tactics, and yeah. you know, I work alongside Stand to Reason as well. But uh, just recently, <clears throat> had a guy on my YouTube channel just really come down hard how stupid it is for Christians to not believe in evolution and I said well what do you mean by evolution and the way that he defined it I agreed with every single bit of his Ooh, point and I said cool. oh if that's the definition of evolution we're, we're in agreement here yeah. and he goes well no you Christians disagree you believe in intelligent design I said no intelligent design doesn't doesn't disagree with with what, how you just defined evolution Ooh, cool. I said we're, we're in agreement here and he's like you know and then it just kind of drops off yeah. Uh, but, you know, just, again, asking those questions. What yeah. do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? You know, what what is going on in your life? And it's amazing, I think, even being as a teacher, just, you know, learning the, the backstory behind some of the students and going, okay, I, I read that one very wrong. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. assumed they were lazy or something and they just weren't yeah. doing the work. And, man, there really are some deeper things going on that need to be addressed. Yeah. And it's so important for us, if we're going to reach people with, with the message of, of, of Jesus and the gospel, to, to really understand the people that we are reaching. And so um, we're going to come back in our second part and uh, discuss ways that we can address uh, the issues in our culture today. So, Paul, thanks for joining me in this first part. You're welcome. And make sure you come back next week for part two of my discussion with Dr. Paul Gould on his book, Cultural Apologetics. And as always, if you've enjoyed the show today, please give it a rating on your podcasting app and share it with a friend or family member so they can enjoy it as well. Also, make sure you send in those questions and comments. Follow all the things that are happening. Get that personal interaction. You can do so at facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions, Twitter or Instagram at ryanpauly3. Text in your questions at 714-989-6927 or even email them in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out the Patreon page to support the work of this ministry and all that God is doing. Thank you so much. God bless. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly.